deeply worried about what was happening to Australia. I call it the straw that broke the camel's back. Unless he did what he did in 1975, things could have become very bad for Australia. And certainly it was an act of extraordinary courage because he knew that uh, things would be very tough if he did what he did. But he still thought he was acting in the interests of the country. Malcolm Fraser led a Liberal Party government for seven years and 122 days. When he lost to Bob Hawke at the 1983 election, no Prime Minister except Robert Menzies had occupied the job for longer. Yet his reputation has been overshadowed by the controversy about the way he came to power and the quarrels within his own party after leaving it. Six years after his death, a fresh appraisal is long overdue, one unclouded by the dismissal of Gough Whitlam that put him into government, or by the political arguments of his post-parliamentary years. Welcome to another Watercooler Conversation. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Dennis White worked for Fraser in his final term. He set out to put the record straight in a monograph, Fraser in Office. Dennis is my guest today. Dennis, let's start with your personal recollections of Fraser, starting perhaps with uh, how you got the job. It would have been in um, February uh, 1981. He'd won the election, which had been widely thought he probably wouldn't win, his third election, which I think was in December. David Kemp was going back into the office. David had worked for... Uh, Malcolm in his private office at the time when he became Prime Minister initially and then moved on. But Malcolm asked David to go back. I knew David well. We were colleagues at Monash. And um, when I knew he was doing that, I said to him, David, I'd be happy to put my hand up if you're looking for some people. And he took me on. Did you know Malcolm Fraser before you started to work for him? I never never met him. But you must have known him as a a figure, obviously, he'd been Prime Minister for, what, six years at that point? Oh, he was an enormous figure. And um, I had known um, people who were involved um, very closely with him and known very well um, one or two of the members of Parliament who'd been largely instrumental in, um, in coming to the view that Fraser needed to lead the Liberal Party, and that had been brought about. So I'd known about him. My wife's family actually came from the same district and when Malcolm interviewed me for the job, it was a very brief interview, he said, my father bought bulls from your wife's father. <laughs> so there was, that, there was that connection, but I think he, he was very quick to judge characters. He saw straight through deceit. He could very quickly sum up a person. So his interviews, whenever he interviewed a person, were very, were very brief. Mm. And when I arrived in the office, it was just straight into work. There was a speech that needed to be written. Mm. Alan Jones had been the speechwriter, and Alan was still there at the time in the office, but he was about to leave. And somebody said to me, would you draft, I'm not sure whether it was David or Malcolm said, would you mind drafting a speech? So I drafted a speech. And I spent the rest of that year drafting speeches. Do you remember how that first speech went down? Did you hit the mark or was there a lot of work to do on it afterwards? I'd be safe in saying there was normally a good deal of work um, that had to be done. 
I had a particular view about the role of the speechwriter. I thought my role was not, in any sense, push my own views, but to try to capture the thinking and, if possible, extend the thinking. Mm. I heard him talk a lot, of course, and one got a sense of the way he spoke, the way he formed sentences. And um, when I went back to academia at the end of uh, that period, it took me six months before I could write what I call it my own stuff. Mm. I was in the way of writing what I thought he should be saying. Uh, I wasn't trying to parrot him, but trying to extend his line of thought. It's a difficult art, isn't it? And it varies from leader to leader, of course. But I know other speechwriters, such as my late friend Christopher Pearson, who was a speechwriter for John Howard briefly, who found the job very frustrating because they found that of their wonderful words, many of them would be dropped and replaced by the Prime Minister. <laughs> but I always feel that that's, that's part of the course, right? It is, the, it is the Prime Minister's speech, he owns it. That never was the slightest concern to me. And um, I was always trying to get words that he would, li that he would want. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't looking for my words. There were only one or two occasions when I tried to. I once put in a story when he was opening a bookseller's fair. And I remembered at Hatchard's in a bookshop in London, there was a sign on the wall about the original Hatchard saying that this day, in 1615 or whatever it was, I did open a bookshop in Piccadilly. And I suggested to Malcolm that he would include that in the speech. And I wondered whether he would, and he did, and I was pleased. But if he'd said, oh, Dennis, I would have, wouldn't have minded. So 1981, as you say, Malcolm Fraser had just won an election. It wasn't as easy a victory as, as was expected. Bill Hayden, a much underrated figure in in Labour history, in my view, had done remarkably well. In fact, had won back a lot of the swing which allowed Bob Hawke to come to power in, in 83. A lot of that hard work had been done. But what was Malcolm Fraser's reputation like in the country at, at that stage? My sense is that he was uh, widely respected. He wasn't a figure that lots of ordinary people found it easy to, uh, to like. He could be very relaxed. He wasn't easy to talk to. He was famously um, difficult to speak with. And it was partly, I used to think, because he would set a very high standard. His own knowledge of nearly everything, of a huge number of topics anyway, was, was pretty precise. And he didn't really have time when he was working to suffer fools. At the other, on the other side, of course, to see him in a pub electioneering, he was absolutely relaxed and people found it very easy to talk to him. And it was a side of his character that few people realised, or a side of his humanity, really, that in a, in a pub he could just very easily talk to people about ordinary matters. He was very interested in people's concerns. He, he worried about what people thought and felt. He had a, a real sense of people. One of his big reasons for hesitating about re reform of the financial system was that he didn't trust the banks. And the reason why he didn't trust the banks was that he had memories of farmers being pushed off their properties 
and it sort of broke his heart to think that that might happen again. Mm. Having himself grown up in those difficult years when so much of that happened. In hindsight, people have often raised this as a, one of his great failings, that he failed to adopt that reform agenda that Margaret Thatcher adopted in Britain, that Ronald Reagan adopted in the United States, that the New Zealand government under Lange and Roger Douglas adopted in New Zealand, Labour government, and then later that was to be adopted by the Hawke and Keating governments. So, I mean, that's a matter of fact. They didn't, they had those ideas and those proposals were before him, but he didn't put them forward. You've, you've mentioned the banks. Can you put any more texture on that? Was it simply that he just wasn't interested in economics or was it that he saw economics from a different perspective and that was driven partly, as you say, because he came from a farming background, from a grazier's background? I think to say that the proposals were put before him and he didn't accept them, I don't think that the um, facts really support that. My understanding is that nobody, not the Department of Treasury nor the Reserve Bank, were supporting mm. those views. Malcolm cared intensely about economics and the economy. That was his prime underlying concern in relation to really the whole of policy. He took an enormous interest in it. He sought out advisers of the highest calibre, people like John Rose and Cliff Walsh and people from the departments. So it wasn't that he didn't take an interest in economics, he was profoundly interested in it. My understanding from talking to close advisers at the time was that nobody really was pushing the agenda, nobody official was pushing that agenda at that time in a, in a way that he could support. At the same time, he was very wary of changing things like the concessions made to home ownership. He was very wary of taking steps that would undermine the way of life of ordinary people. He didn't want that to happen and he saw that as a danger in anything. And so when the Campbell Committee reported, he saw a need to consider very closely all the things that it was reporting. He wasn't against the whole idea by any manner of means. Indeed, the fact that he set up the Campbell Committee shows that he was committed to the idea. Indeed. Um, but time then ran out. He was not happy to have, say, the home ownership issue, which it was a big issue, the home ownership issue. He was not happy to have that wiped out by following some government inquiry. In hindsight, he was probably right on that, wasn't he? I mean, th those homeowner concession policies, which had begun with Menzies, were, were highly successful, weren't they, in getting Australians in their own homes? You know, home ownership moving from 50% or thereabouts in 1949 to... 70% at the time of Menzies' retirement from politics, that was an important thing to do. And, and, and I guess when we look now at the home-owning issue and, and how home-owning is actually declining, we'd say he was probably right to stand by that. Yes, well, I think uh, and that's certainly a, a strong point. But, but in a way, time ran out. Um, he wasn't willing to do too much in that way. Um, without being convinced that those values 
would be preserved. And it, it did fascinate me, and I think I've mentioned this in the book. In the year 2000, long after he'd gone, and the Liberal Party didn't think well of him, and he didn't think very well of it. But at that time, I was talking to him, and he was writing a paper about how to prevent the excesses of um, the economic reforms that had happened. And when 2006 came along, I was looking at what I'd written, and, um, and there it was that five or six years before the, the great financial crisis, Malcolm had sort of half been worried about the kind of things that actually came home with it. Mm. So I think his concern to make sure that, his concern really to hasten slowly was the thing. Which is in the liberal tradition. I mean, that's how we should reform, isn't it, always? At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. We started with the negative on the economy, or what some is perceived to be a negative, but I think what's never fully appreciated these days is how well he managed the country economically. When you look at the country he inherited in 1975, a country with rampant inflation, growing debt, massive increases in government spending during the Whitlam years, and then look at the country uh, in 83 uh, when he lost the election. His achievement is quite remarkable, I think, in stabilising the country, stabilising the economy and bringing back, while not reducing spending by any great amount, uh, he at least stabilised spending. Spending did not go on increasing. That's right. That's absolutely right. And how hard was that? That was immensely difficult because nobody sort of seemed, obviously, to get anything out of it or to, get, to benefit from it. He was a kind of rock. Who set, and he set his face against things that couldn't be done without continuing that trend. He did, I think, stabilise the civic fabric of the country. In 75, the country was very polarised over the dismissal. And there was a lot of wild talk about where this would go. But democracy was restored and played its part and two elections were able to take place until he lost the third. You know, he did, even by just governing for that period and bringing some stability back to the government, achieve a great deal, I think. He, he did, and he achieved a lot economically. He achieved a lot environmentally. It surprised people that uh, he was so strongly supportive of the environment. He'd been a foundation member of the um, Australian Conservation Foundation. Which was set up with a government grant in the... Uh, Late 60s, I the think, 60s, under a liberal government. Yes, I'm not sure, but anyway, he was—he was—he was an initial member of that, so he was very strong on that, and, and brought about major um, major initiatives in relation to the Great Barrier Reef and Fraser Island and 
the um, prevention of whaling, uh, various treaties about whaling. And um, so he was very strong on the environment. He was very strong on, um, on indigenous matters. He saw the tremendous tragedy of, uh, of what had happened in that area and, and tried to find ways so difficult, of course, um, and, and suitable ministers uh, who might be able to, to fix things up. He himself got on wonderfully well with Aboriginals and loved meeting with them. And Multiculturalism, of course, really was something that he pushed at the time. It was almost a dirty word in Australia, uh, in, in many parts anyway. But Malcolm pushed very hard for refugees and bringing in particularly the refugees from Vietnam. There were people who came in small boats, as I think. Uh, and these people, um, of course, had enormous gratitude to him. Uh, on the day of his funeral, as I walked down Collins Street to go into the church, I saw there were placards up and, I, and my heart fell um, because I thought here were protests. They looked like protests. But in fact, they were posters with um, Vietnamese people standing by them in silence, thanking Malcolm. It's worth putting that into context too, I think, isn't it? Because it seems counterintuitive now that a, a Liberal Prime Minister would be seen as a sort of champion of refugees. But I think the important thing to note is that the program that he oversaw was a controlled immigration program for refugees operated through the United Nations in which they were largely, refugees were largely, you know, applied in overseas locations in Thailand or elsewhere where they were in temporary camps, Hong Kong, and then were chosen to come. We didn't, it was not the equivalent of what happened uh, more recently in Australia. No, it was, it was nothing like boat that. Boat after boat after yes, boat arriving on the shore. it was nothing like that. And I'm not sure that Malcolm ever really understood the difference very well because he felt very passionately about the rights of people. He felt very passionately about democracy. I recall an occasion after Jeff Kennett had um, sacked all the city council, all the um, local government authorities in, in Victoria and replaced them with commissioners while some reforms went on. And um, Malcolm hadn't quite taken this, this in and I explained to him that these commissioners had been appointed and I mentioned a particular person who we both knew who'd been made a commissioner. And Malcolm said, is he one? And I said, yes. And he said, did he win an election? And I said he was appointed. And Malcolm almost looked as though he would be physically ill. He was just revolted at the thought that someone should hold office without being elected. You come to an important point, Dennis, because does this not go to the point about responsibility, that politicians of Malcolm Fraser's generation saw their job of taking responsibility. They were not going to outsource this to an unelected official. No, they were not. And, um, and Malcolm was very, uh, I mean, he, he believed in a, a strong public service. He, uh, he would sometimes uh, not, uh, not want someone appointed to a senior position in the public service because, it, as he might say, they wouldn't stand up to me. He thought it was very important that, if he, that when someone became a head of the department, they should be able to stand up to him and certainly to a minister. But at the same time, he thought that the minister should, should be in control. But uh, yes, it's, it's a very, I guess it's a, it's a Menzian view of, the, um, of the, the role of the 
bureaucracy. He was extraordinarily effective at using public servants. There are a few wonderful occasions when um, he'd be wondering about a policy and he was wanting to get at the relevant facts. And he always found it difficult to get at all the facts and all the advice that he was looking for. Um, and I recall a few occasions when he would call in three or four of the most senior public servants in a particular area of policy, usually economic policy, and he would then throw questions at them and want them to come back with answers. And he might throw 20 or 30 questions at them at a, at a meeting and they would uh, produce a document and I recall on one occasion uh, he's, all the questions were answered as it was thought and Malcolm said to them, but you didn't answer such and such a question. And it was a hard question and they hadn't known what to do about it. And it was a case of his memory which was so powerful. Uh, he remembered that he'd asked them for something that they hadn't given it to them and um, he wasn't happy. You, you mentioned how Menzies influenced him, as indeed he must. I mean, he was I'm searching my memory when Malcolm Fraser entered Parliament, but it was certainly in the 50s. 1955, 55, yes. that's right. So he would have served in Parliament during the last nine years of that's right. Menzies' yes. government. Yes. Um, and Menzies, uh, Malcolm first stood in 1953 and he lost by 44 votes. And Menzies had apparently not spoken at a rally in one of the um, southern towns in Malcolm's electorate. And um, after Malcolm lost by 44 votes, Menzies apologised to him because he said, if I'd come there, I reckon I would have got 44 more people, 44 more votes for you on that night and you would have won. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have gone the other way, of course. You never know. Um, but, I, I, you know, thinking about Malcolm Fraser, thinking about particularly his reputation for humanitarian, what we might call humanitarian activities with multiculturalism in particular, it seems to me that, that what Fraser had very strongly was a sense of that social obligation that, that Menzies did. I mean, Menzies spoke about the importance of making the country both more prosperous and just. And by just, he meant social justice, which is a word we don't, uh, we've, we've sort of let the, le the left take that word, but it, it used to be a word. Malcolm certainly used. believed in that yeah. very strongly. Very so strongly. what did he mean by that? He, he really meant a fair go. Um, and there's another side we haven't picked up on. What an outstanding figure and what an extraordinarily capable figure he was. I had the, the privilege, I suppose, to sit in on, on a couple of his meetings with um, world leaders. And I also had uh, the opportunity to, to be at a couple of dinners where he and Henry Kissinger were talking about foreign policy. And to hear those two, I, as an academic, I'd heard many very high-level discussions about foreign policy, foreign matters, international relations. To hear Fraser and Kissinger talk about these things was to hear people on, a, on an entirely different plane. And Malcolm was, on, was up there with Kissinger. And when, when Malcolm was uh, representing Australia, talking to people like President Reagan or or Deng Xiaoping, uh, to name two of the great leaders of that era, he was um, 
He was a very strong voice for Australia. In no sense could one have felt um, that he was overshadowed by their calibre. His calibre in that level, at that level was remarkable. Which of those meetings we, or which of those leaders did you meet? Did you meet Deng Xiaoping? I'd, I'd, I sat in the meeting. I didn't formally meet him, but I listened to him talk for half an hour to Malcolm. It was the most extraordinary experience. And the other, the other one was Reagan, uh, who, I, and I was at two of those conversations. Reagan, uh, if I can tell a story or two about Reagan, there was an amazing incident where this meeting was taking place in the White House with the Australians on one side of the table and the Americans on the other, and the press were admitted to take some photos and they came in behind us and they were, so they were looking towards Reagan and the photos were taken and Malcolm, of course, tried to turn Ray's head round so that, um, so that uh, they weren't, weren't just in the back of his head and, and Reagan, in his beautiful, extraordinary voice, said, Malcolm, he said, it's a bit like that painting of the Last Supper. If you want to be in the picture, you've got to be on this side of the table. <laughs> and then in the meeting with Deng Xiaoping, Malcolm explored um, the issue of how modernisation was going. And Deng Xiaoping painted the most extraordinary picture of um, how China had been damaged uh, by the Cultural Revolution and how hard it was, uh, his task of, uh, of overcoming it. I mean, he said uh, there was no economy and there was no one to um, fix things because the education system had been destroyed and the transport, everything had been destroyed. Uh, and um, once again, um, listened to all this but stood firm for... Um, for the the kind of perspective that he had as well, yeah. so he was a, he was an ex, a very impressive performer at that at that level. Uh, well, it was an extraordinary period of Chinese history, wasn't it? That Deng Xiaoping, as leader, uh, was criticising his predecessor, Mao yes. Zedong, you know, the great figure, um, and at the same time wanted to open up the economy. Um, you can see how we must have felt at that time that things were going to change in China. Yes. Uh, it was easy to fall into that way of thinking at that stage, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, um, and I think Malcolm recognised that, uh, he says somewhere, that um, China has to sort of play a part in, uh, <coughs> in uh, whatever's going to happen in the world, a major part. And he was keen to try and make sure that that was... That worked out well for everyone, <laughs> difficult as it was. So on foreign policy, because the big issue was the Cold War at that stage, right. and Russia's invasion, or the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, which I think was, uh, must have happened around the time or slightly before that, uh, the, the 80s. Reagan's um, push against the Soviet, Malcolm gave absolutely full backing to that. He was certainly... Um, he was far more concerned about Soviet communism at that stage, I think, than uh, particularly what, it, what was happening in China as Deng Xiaoping was trying to, to bring, a, bring about reforms. 
just to delve a bit more into the human side, if you like, of Malcolm Fraser, he's, he's the fact that he saw policies that would help people, whether they were economic or not, were part of what the Liberals were put on earth to do. It strikes me that that instinct always follows from that fundamental principle of liberalism, which Menzies out expounded so much, that every person is of equal worth, and we should, as far as we can, ensure that every human being has equal opportunity, and not equal outcomes, of course, we can't do that, but equal opportunity. Was that part of Malcolm's makeup? And I, I say it because, you know, I mean, in some portrayals of him as, as somebody who's very aloof and feels himself quite superior. Oh, he was, uh, I don't know that I've ever known anyone who, who would give such respect to everyone as, um, as Malcolm. It was, it was very fundamental um, in him. I mean, he loved uh, a man's a man for all that. That was a quote that he put at the start of one of his books. He thought that, um, that famous Burns quotation, uh, um, <coughs> he, um, he would always listen to people. He could be, um, you could have a fairly robust discussion with him, but he, um, but he did listen, he did respect, he did have sympathy, a great deal of sympathy for people. Not many people understand, I think, how he became so interested in politics. It stunned some people who knew him as a, as a young man that he went into politics. And I once, on a couple of occasions, spoke to Malcolm about this. And he once tried writing about it, but I don't think it ever got down on paper. And he's, he said that when he was at Oxford, he read the great philosophers and found there um, that all of them had something to say about democracy or humanity or the economy or this or that. All of them had answers to some of the questions, but none of them had answers to all of the questions. And he said, that's why politics is the great profession, because it's the job of politics to deal with those problematic issues where where the experts um, uh, don't have answers. And it always seems to me that's a very high view of politics. It's a, it's a magnificent conception of politics. Yeah. Fascinated me that he tried to write about it. Um, I wish, well, nobody's seen, I don't know whether he did write about it or not. But he told me, that's what he said to me. And I've tried to say something about that in the book that he saw it as the great profession for that reason, um, that it's, it's the ultimate. Do you think that many of his achievements have been co-opted by other leaders? I'm thinking particularly Gough Whitlam, who came before him, and Bob Hawke, who came after him, um, both of which would probably claim some role in multiculturalism, you know, in, but it, of course, the facts are that the ending of the White Australia policy began in 1967, and it evolved and continued through the Fraser government with multiculturalism. The you know, the, as you say, the Vietnamese immigration, in particular, uh, and the establishment of the SBS, for instance. These were really his, uh, liberal achievements, and his in particular, yes. that have been co-opted by. Labour, the left of politics, and, and similarly, I think with the environment. I mean, the, the 
the Liberal Party was very early in, in looking at measures to, to conserve the environment. Um, and, and, and of course, after Franklin Dam, it became very political and it became a Labour issue. Does that, does that frustrate you? Do you think it's something that we need to, we need to correct in the history books? Yes, I mean, I, I think the great, the great Fraser achievement, I think, was to um, turn around the, um, the notion of the growth of government. Uh, he really took on big government and, um, and I think um, without Fraser, Hawke would never have been able to um, follow the kind of policy that he um, that he did. I think that he was building very much on what Malcolm sort of um, on the turnaround of um, of restraining government and limiting and being being more precise about its role. Malcolm thought it was very important for um, uh, for government to know sort of, to know what it was doing. He was conscious that government could uh, do things very badly. Um, one of the things that he once mentioned to me, because he received lots of uh, letters from his electorate, of course, about um, various complaints. He was a local member as well as prime minister. And he said uh, that once in a while, when someone, when a constituent wrote in with some complaint about some government action taken against them, Malcolm said he would sometimes send off the letter to the ombudsman, but also to the department, and then he'd see which of them responded first which I thought was a fascinating approach for a local member to take to try and protect his constituents against, um, against um, government. But I'm coming back to your, the question you raise about um, how much he turned things around in Australia. I think, um, I think there was a kind of respect for the fact that he, he was genuine, he wasn't looking after his own interests. He, I think people knew that he was absolutely and single-mindedly for Australia. Uh, and um, and that, uh, that penetrated and so people saw that it was very important to be um, very careful not to, not to go down the wrong track in trying to do that. And for all Australia, I mean, country as well as the city, certainly that. educated people yes. as well as people, yes. more practical-minded yes. people. Yes, and he, he knew Australia remarkably well. I've, I've often told the story of the first time I drafted a speech for him in Perth and um, uh, he was giving a, a speech over there and I'd flown over there. I'd only been working for him for a couple of weeks and he read my draft and he said, you haven't mentioned the Indian Ocean. And my thought was, well, why would I mention the Indian Ocean? Because in the, in the west, on the east coast, we never think of it. But he was aware that over there they do think about it, and it's, it was a present reality. Mm. And um, so he, he was, and that epitomised his sense that his knowledge of Australia, and his sense that he was governing for all Australians. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dennis. I think you've you've done us a great service in putting. Malcolm Fraser in context. So I think that's essentially what you've done in this book, isn't it? You've, you've put him in the context of his times and in context of the, his predecessors as Liberal leaders and his successors. He was, 
part of that liberal tradition. Yes, he was very, very strongly part of that tradition, I think, and um, um, he had a very tough, a very tough job. Uh, he came in in a very tough way. Um, I think he probably, definitely, was uh, concerned that unless he uh, did what he did in 1975, things could be could have become very bad for Australia. He was. It wasn't. It was a very unusual, extraordinary time, and I think the book conveys that um, through the words of. Um, not my own words, but someone else's, an independent person's account of what 1975 was like. He seems to have been portrayed as somebody with immense personal ambition that would stop at nothing in order to get into government, and, and that was the reason why the dismissal occurred. But it seems to me there's another explanation here. It could be that he simply could observe what was happening to the country under the Whitlam administration, how badly run it was, albeit that it was beginning to get a little bit better by that stage, the spending, the lack of attention to the inflation which was happening, the need to borrow money, the, de the desperate measures they went to to try and borrow money from overseas to keep the country going. It seems to me that could have been his motivation, just simply his love for the country and his real concern that if he let that government go its full term that the damage would be even greater. Which would you say it is? Personal, was it personal ambition or care for his country? Oh, I have absolutely no doubt that it was care for his country. Um, he was deeply worried and concerned about what was happening to Australia. He saw things got so bad in some ways in that year that um, eventually the point came when um, when I call it the straw that broke the camel's back in, in, my, in that book. It was incredible that that, that license for someone to, to, to try and borrow money um, in, a, in, a, in a shonky way was still going on. So here was something that made him desperately worried. Malcolm himself had set out very clearly on the day he became leader of the opposition the fact that he didn't want to interfere with the government if it was doing its job properly. But uh, having said that, and he'd said he wouldn't do that, and this actually, um, this statement that he made on that occasion really quietened the press for most of the year because he'd made it very clear he wasn't going to be looking for, just looking for something, looking for an excuse. But he said in that same statement, but if something happens that's so serious that uh, we're going to have to do something about it, well, I'll do something about it. But, it, but I have no doubt that that statement, a brilliant statement, a uh, very influential statement, that that statement reflected his real view, mm -hmm. that he wouldn't try desperately to use those numbers in the, um, in the Senate, but that if things got so bad that... Uh, Australia's future was threatened, then he would um, look about to do what uh, he did. And certainly it was an act of extraordinary courage to take on, because he knew, he knew, he must have known that uh, things would be very tough if he did what he did, but he still thought he was acting in the interest of the country. An act of courage, you say, that's not a word that's, that's commonly been used in describing that period. 
It was courage because the um, storm that was unleashed upon him was absolutely prodigious. The storm continued for years, but he, uh, he felt that he had to do it. I've got, I've got no doubt about that. Dennis White, thank you for sharing your memories of Malcolm Fraser and your insights into his character and government. Your monograph, Fraser in Office, is published by the Menzies Research Centre's Japarit Press imprint, price $19.95, and you can order it from menziesrc.org books. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening. Listening.